You may recall that as we have been going through the book of Revelation, we had that section about the seven churches, and then we were then taken up to the throne room of heaven. And then the last time that we were in chapter 5, we saw (coughs) this scroll that it appeared that no one was able to open except for the Lamb. And now this evening we're going to look at that scroll as it begins to be unsealed, one seal at a time, by the Lamb. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. The Word of the Lord is sufficient. It is completely trustworthy. It is without any error. And it is authoritative. Revelation chapter 6. Now I watched while the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked. And behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow. And a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse. Bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that men should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius! And three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a quarter of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood? on those who dwell the earth. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? 
Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you this evening and we long to learn more of who you are. Lord, please teach us from your word that we may love you more, serve you more fervently. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we have here this evening the continuation of this scene of the throne room of heaven. You may recall that we have said that the book of Revelation is the end of all things. It is the tying up of the story of the Bible. And it does it in a, in a technicolor fashion. This is not a Pauline epistle. It is not to be read or interpreted as such. It is vivid imagery that reminds us who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And so we have been looking, peeking, as it were, with John into the throne room of heaven, seeing first that Jesus is on the throne, that He is the one who reigns, that He is holy and righteous and good. Then we looked last time at chapter 5 and we saw this great scroll that contains the will and the judgment of God. And no one was found fit to open it. Not the brightest angel. Not the elders. Not the four living creatures. And you remember John's reaction to this was that he wept. That no one was found worthy to open the scroll. Until he looked and he saw the Lamb of God. The Lion of Judah was the Lamb of God. This was the Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember how we said how ironic it is that the powerful warrior king, the Lion of Judah, was a lamb as it was slain. And I think that is to help correct us from searching and jumping to conclusions to wanting a God that is swift to punish our enemies. A God that is all might and warrior power. This is, of course, the great error of Islam. All God is is a punishing, distant warrior. But this evening as we look in chapter 6, another error is corrected. It's the error that, while perhaps not the most theological phrase, I think descriptively it can be described as the way we think of wimpy Jesus. You know what I mean when I say wimpy Jesus. It's, for my mind, best encapsulated by the Scandinavian portrait of Jesus with the long hair and the droopy eyes and the pale skin and the softness about Him. It's the way we think about Jesus only as kind of soft. Someone who would never interrupt a conversation. Someone who is so foreign to the man who, uh, the God-man who overturned the, the money changers' tables. Sometimes we think in order to distance ourselves from Jesus, we picture Him as somehow so gentle as to be under our control. John is going to show us here that the Lamb of God, the gentle, gracious second person of the Trinity, is also the one who is the judge of the earth. That's said throughout the Scripture as well. Jesus is the God of grace, but He is also the God of judgment. And so this evening we are able to peek into the judgment of these seals that are broken. Now there are seven of them. We're only going to look at six of them this evening because the seventh will occur later in the text. 
What I would like us to do is to look at them in a bit of an uneven fashion. What do I mean by that? We'll look first quickly at the first four seals. These first four seals really spell one thing. Trouble. These first four seals are trouble for those who are upon the earth. It is judgment that comes down from the Lamb. And then we will look at the fifth seal. And the fifth seal describes for us a situation where there is patience in persecution. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, reminds the slain martyrs that they are to have patience in their persecution, that God is for them. But they must have patience. Because soon enough that sixth seal will be opened. And the sixth seal spells much more than trouble. The sixth seal spells judgment and justice upon the earth. So we'll look at one through four, trouble. Five, patience and persecution. And six, judgment and justice. Let's look then now here at these first four seals. Before we get into the particulars, these seals are ones that many of us know well as they speak of the the four horsemen or the four riders of the apocalypse. I think we need to ask ourselves an important question. Why are these seals being opened and why is this trouble coming upon the earth? Isn't God love? Isn't God one who seeks to to show us His kindness and His grace. Isn't that the main characteristic of God? We, we see this and we hear this often. And I would put it to you that these seals that open up with frightening judgment that comes on the earth show that God is indeed love. Because the least loving thing that you can do to someone who is headed down a path of destruction is to leave them alone, Right? Is it loving of a parent to see their child playing around by a hot stove and say, oh, well, I guess that'll be fine? No. You enter in and you warn them. And you tell them all of the bad things that will happen and how they will be harmed and hurt if they keep on this pace. See, God is love, but God is also a God of justice and judgment. It is not love for the Lord to forever See injustice upon the earth. To never justify those that are His people that have been abused and excused. And that's why these seals are here. Secondly, we need to think about the larger context of these seals being opened. Do not forget that the reason that they are being opened... Do not forget in all of the detail of the colors of the horses and the descriptions of the destruction and all of these things that they are all meant to describe one central fact and that is that Jesus Christ is on the throne of the universe. That's the main idea that John wants to get across to you. So even if you forget what colors the horses are or whose death and whose famine, if you can remember that Jesus Christ is in control of all things, not just the spectacular seals, but your life as well, you will find comfort. Well, who are these riders? There are four seals and four riders. And the first rider is upon a white horse. He is a rider that has a bow. Now, the bow, you need to understand, in John's day, symbolized the power of the conqueror. 
if we were to describe it in our kind of vivid terms, we would say that he carried with him a tank. You see, the bow was the weapon of choice used by the Babylonians and by the Chaldeans to sweep through areas and take them over. It was very difficult to defend against these well, mounted archers. Attila the Hun, for example, the great fearsomeness of the Mongol horde was that they were mounted archers. That's why they almost took over the known world. And so this is a rider who is bent on conquest. Now, some think because the horse is white and there's a rider on it with a crown that perhaps this is even the Lord Jesus Christ. But even though Jesus will appear later in Revelation on a white horse, it doesn't fit the context. It's a good thing to remind ourselves of how we interpret the Bible. You know, John spoke earlier about their their home sale, and you know the three most important things in real estate, right? Location, location, location. In Bible interpretation, the three most important things are context, context, and context. And here we have judgment going forth upon the earth and conquest. And so I don't think it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Others think that perhaps this might be the Antichrist, one who looks like Christ, but who is out to bring conquest and suffering. I think that's possible, but I think it could also be something as simple as this rider symbolizes conquest itself. And if we think about it, conquest has brought untold suffering upon the earth, has it not? Because what happens when one nation or army conquers another? Typically, in Bible times, what would happen is that all of the men would be killed. And the women and the children would be sold into slavery. We hear story of many uh, city-states and armies who brought their women and children with them to the battlefield, knowing that if they were defeated, that their families would be destroyed as well. And so I think that's what's going on here with this white rider. It's conquest. Well, the second rider is a rider on a red horse. And I think this is easier to interpret. This is war itself. You see, this horse was bright red, but its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that men should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. And again, we shouldn't be surprised at the great suffering and judgment that war is. We think about this even in the context of how our Lord tells us how we will know when the end of the earth, the world is near at hand in Mark chapter 13. We will know because we will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And we even see this in our day as more and more often with all of the technology, with all of the education, with everything that we have, war is constantly with us. Blood. The third rider is a rider on a black horse. And there's this interesting saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, a denarius is that silver coin that we looked at this morning, that there were 50,000 of them for the value of the books. And it was basically an entire day's wage. Now, what do you need to know about this? This is the rider of famine. And you need to understand the importance of grain to this area of the, of the world, the importance of wheat. There were three main agricultural crops in the ancient world. There was wine, grapes for wine, olives for oil, and grain 
for bread or food. And this area of the world had plenty of grapes and it had plenty of olives. One thing it didn't have much of was grain. They actually imported most of their grain from a place that you know well. We had missionaries here last week from the, what is now the Ukraine. It was where they imported grain. And so what you need to understand here as well is that this famine is descriptive because these prices are ten times the normal price of food. This is a judgment that comes upon the earth. It is a limited judgment, but it gives us perspective at how dependent we are upon God. If conquest doesn't get us, war might, but then also there's famine. And then lastly, there is a pale horse that comes. Now this is even easier to interpret because we are told that its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. Now, what do we mean by pale? Some think that what pale, when I say pale to you, you think of a kind of a white. But what I want you to, to, to understand here is this is pale in the sense of someone, their skin color when they're ill. Have you ever seen someone when they've eaten bad food? Or when they've got a really bad flu? How they get almost a, a, a greenish tinge? It's a very pale, sickly-looking color. That's the color of this horse. You see, because this judgment is about death and pestilence. And it reminds us that the judgment of the Lord can come in not only great and horrific things like war and storms, but in little things like bacteria and illness. And a quarter of the earth is slain by this horse and its rider. Judgments are coming upon the earth. So these first four seals describe horror of judgment coming upon the earth. And then the fifth seal is opened and we are taken back to heaven. And there's a shift in vision. We move from the earth and judgment upon those around the earth to heaven itself. Now this seal doesn't bring trouble, but what it does is it highlights the need for justice. Because what happens is the the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God cried out. They have been persecuted most horribly. These are the people of Christ who have been slain. And they have been slain specifically because of the stand they have taken for Jesus. We read about this in the newspaper all the time now, don't we? Many of you, I know, like I did, prayed for uh, the man in Afghanistan who was sentenced to be beheaded simply for converting to Christianity. And we rejoiced when we heard or read in World Magazine that he had been delivered and been brought out of that nation and was safe. But the truth of the matter is, for everyone who is saved, there are hundreds, thousands who are slain by those who hate the Lord Jesus Christ and hate the fact that others will proclaim His name. They're killed by beheading, by fire, by starvation, by drowning. And they're killed because of their stand for Jesus. This is very distant from us because we don't think about being baptized as being one of the most dangerous things you can do in your life. We think as long as there's a towel nearby, we can dry it off and we're okay. And that is true here. But in many nations, to be baptized, to take a stand for Jesus means that you put a bullseye on your person. 
Many, many believers feel the real pain of what Jesus said, that there is divisions of husband and wife, parent and child, brother and sister, because of claiming Jesus Christ. And I think in some sense we must be prepared for this. Do I think that right now that kind of persecution will roll upon us? Not yet. But we are getting closer and closer, it seems, all the time. Don't we? In a nation like the United Kingdom, the nation where the Westminster Confession of Faith was written, it has now become a disqualification to be a foster parent simply because you are a Christian. Think about that. You are disqualified from being a foster parent. And so, when will the day come when we may face, as those who stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, persecution? Will we be able to stand even as the martyrs stood? And if we stand, will we not cry out with them, How long, O Lord? You see, we long for the Lord Jesus Christ to return, but how much more those who are persecuted, who had their children stolen from them and sold into slavery, how must their cries go up? How long will you put up with this, Lord? Deliver us! That's the kind of attitude we should have toward the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is not merely a cry for revenge. This is a cry that the Lord would vindicate Himself, would vindicate what is right, would stand for justice. And the Lord's patience will have an end. And He will vindicate. You see, He says, rest to them. But He says, rest a little longer. His patience will not bear forever. There is a point at which His patience will be done. And we should be encouraged in this patience as we look and we see these slain martyrs and they are indeed alive, aren't they? They are alive and they are with Jesus. This is not the clear answer we might want. It's the reason why I think so many foolishly set dates like May 21st for the return of Jesus. Because what we want is a really clear date. We want to circle it in our day timer to know that's exactly how long we have to be patient. Isn't that true? You see that with your children, don't you? They ask you if they can do something particular or eat something particular. And you say, well, yes, we'll get to it. And they say, well, when? And you say, well, in a little bit. I'm busy. I'll take care of this. Well, well when? A half an hour? 35 minutes? And if you're like me, the last thing in the world you want to do is give them a set time because then you know you'll go past the time and then you'll listen to it from that time on. You said 30 minutes. It's been 31. You Come on, how long? And you see, I think there's wisdom in the way the Lord has specifically not given us a time for a return because He wants us to be patient and persevere for His sake. Not simply because we're marking off time until we're done. Well, that's a fifth seal that shows the patience. Finally, we have here a sixth seal. And the fifth seal goes right into the sixth because the fifth seal talks about patience for the judgment that will surely come. Just a little longer, our Lord says. 
And it's ironic that that little bit longer is marked off by the number of martyrs that have to be killed. When your number is full, then judgment and justice will come. So we look here in verse 11, we see that each of these persecuted saints is given a white robe, a white robe to symbolize victory and pureness. And they were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And then that sixth seal is opened up and it is described for us what will happen when the patience is over, when the rest is done, when the number is full, and it is horrific. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. Now think about that. This is interesting in God's providence because... Um, in the interim when I planned to preach this sermon and wasn't able to last week and, and this week, we really know what an earthquake is like, don't we? We've seen pictures of it. We've seen pictures of an earthquake that is one of the largest in recorded history, but it is 8.9 or 9.2 or something out of 10, so it's not even a 10, and it didn't even occur on land. It occurred off the sea, And the destruction is devastating. Did you catch yourself when you heard that they were worried about a tsunami, not just in Japan, but in Hawaii and in Alaska? And when there were warning signs and sirens in California and Oregon? That should really tell us about the power of God. And you see, this would have been very vivid to these seven churches that were reading this a letter to the churches in Revelation because you may recall that there were several of these cities that were flattened by an earthquake just before this happened. They would know the great destruction, the suddenness, the lack of warning. This is how judgment comes. Earthquake is used for a reason. It is to remind us of the power of God. We might think of it in the way we think about the power of God in Katrina. I remember after that storm, going, being in Jackson and going out and seeing gigantic trees. Not little ones. Trees where the trunk around was bigger than this aisle. And seeing like a giant hand had just come up and grabbed it, picked it up out of the ground and laid it on its side with all the roots. The storm is the way of seeing the great power of God. And it's mixed in with this imagery from the Old Testament. Listen to Isaiah 34 and see if it sounds familiar to Revelation 6. All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their host shall fall as leaves from the vine, as leaves falling from the fig tree. It's the same way that warnings are described in Hebrews. How the Old Covenant is rolled up, as it were, like the skies, like a scroll. And what we need to be prepared for in this judgment is the coming of the Lord. This is described for us throughout the Scriptures. Familiar to us in Joel chapter 2, how the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Jeremiah writes, The land trembles and writhes in pain, for the Lord's purposes against Babylon stand to make, a, to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitants. 
Nahum, in describing judgment, says the mountains quake before Him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before Him, the world and all who dwell in it. You see, this earthquake is not just about destruction. It is about destruction that comes in the wake of the coming of the Lord. Because He cannot be stopped. You see, the nature of the wrath of the Lamb is that it is inescapable. There is no place to hide. Not in any cave, not in any rock. I mean... Those who are experiencing this are in the position of saying something as foolish as, please let the mountains fall on top of us just to keep us away from the wrath of the Lamb. This is a good passage to remind yourself if you think about, well, is it really important to believe in Jesus? Do we really need to press that point home to our conscience Do we really need to tell neighbors and friends about who Jesus is? Do we really need to be narrow-minded? You see, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way to escape this wrath. Would you rather have an awkward conversation with a neighbor? Would you rather say that you have come to the end of your own rope? Or would you rather wish that mountains would fall down upon you simply so you could escape the wrath? Of God. There's no place to hide from the Lord. There's no excuse that can be offered. He won't want to hear you were busy. Or that your parents weren't very helpful. Or that your wife nagged you. Or that your husband was domineering. Or that you didn't have access to the right books. There are no excuses. When the judgment comes, it comes as a mountain, as an earthquake. And from that point, there is no hope at all. But praise be to God that God gives us this information. He gives us this glimpse into heaven so that we can have hope now to know that to be found in Christ is on the judgment day, a great day of vindication, not of judgment. Because you see, The judgment of the Lamb's wrath is the end of all things. It is the end of all history. And Jesus Christ is the judge. He is the one that will judge the living and the dead. He is the one that when He appears, His kingdom will be in fullness. You see, this chapter, in conclusion, describes for us a great deal of destruction, war, famine, conquest, sickness, But in reality, what this chapter is about is not, will I survive the trouble that's ahead of me? The main question of this chapter is not, will I survive all of the troubles, difficulties, and persecutions that are before me? The question that this chapter causes us to ask is, will I survive the judgment of the Lamb? And there's only one answer to that. There's only one answer to this question in verse 17. Who can stand? The only one that can stand is the one who is delivered by Christ, by faith in Christ. That is the one who will stand. Because if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not stand on your own. You stand in Jesus. You are vindicated. You are delivered from the wrath to come. You are delivered into fullness of life with Jesus. So I encourage you this week, 
not to focus on how you will get through the difficulties that providence has placed in your path, whether they be illness or financial or relationship, but rather to focus upon how you will stand in the day of wrath because of what Jesus has done. That puts everything else into perspective, doesn't it? Only those who are in Christ will stand. Let's pray.